Let's turn our attention now to the Word of the Lord, to the book of James in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 13, and to the end of the chapter. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The book of James is sometimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And of course, I think that is right. I think there are in the book of James many, many statements that kind of stand alone. One of my favorite is found in this particular passage, the very last verse. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This harkens back to the words of Christ when he talks about the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And I think the example that James had in his mind all throughout writing the book of James is none other than his older brother, Jesus Christ himself. Just a few years junior to Jesus, he no doubt sat across from Christ at the carpenter's bench there in the shop in Nazareth. And as they worked on things and as they communicated and toiled and carried on like brothers carry on, he saw in his brother a meekness and a gentleness. He saw in his brother a kindness that he didn't see in his other brothers or in any of his friends round about him. And he had before him an example of someone who was living out the book of Proverbs. Let me just notice something for you this morning. Going back to the book of Proverbs, one of the key uh, thematic passages is in chapter 3, very familiar to you. Proverbs 3, My son, do not forget my teaching, and let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace, and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. This particular passage of Scripture, by the way, I think tells us several things. One thing it tells us is that the Christian life or the life of faith is this very thing here in verse 5. Trust, that's the commitment of faith, trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's a single-mindedness to that. 
In other words, placing our faith in Christ, trusting in the Lord, and doing it with all of our heart, with a genuine heartfelt decision, a genuine heartfelt impulse to serve the Lord. These are the ways that we walk in the ways of the Lord. It said, do not lean unto your own understanding. There's parallel words that are used from the text here in our passage this morning. And do not lean to your own understanding because we're going to look at kind of the way our own understanding goes. It's called a wisdom that is not from above. And then there is, of course, a wisdom that is from above. And these are contrasted in the passage. The wisdom that is not from above. We'll see a little bit about that. And then the wisdom that is from above. It says, do not lean to your own understanding. That is the wisdom that is not from above. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. And the word acknowledge him really means come to know him. It's not just a tacit acknowledgement. Oh yeah, he's the Lord. He's my savior. You know, amen, I'm saved by grace. Now I can live by grit and gumption. No, no, no. In all your ways, acknowledge him, learn of him, take on him. Now, the second thing I'd like to point out about this Proverbs passage is notice the first prior to that, verse 4, Proverbs 3, 4. You will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. When Luke, in his gospel, wanted to describe those years of Christ that were spent between the ages of 12 and 30. 18 years, the teenage years and the young adult years of Jesus, he describes it by saying he increased in wisdom, that is proverbial wisdom, acknowledging God, trusting in the Lord, not leaning to his own understanding. He increased in wisdom and in stature. That's not only physically growing, but that's emotionally growing, and that is growing socially and in every other way. He increased in wisdom and statue and in favor with God and man, and that's a direct quotation from this particular passage in Proverbs, with favor and good success in the sight of God and man. In other words, when Luke had only one little tiny verse to summarize the 18 formative years of Jesus. He pulled out of the Proverbs one verse that said it all. How Christ himself, from age 12 to age 30, matured and grew in the wisdom and the knowledge of God and how he grew in his relationship and in his favor and in his uh, uh, back and forth in his daily life toward men and those around him. Jesus was the Proverbs man. Jesus in his life was the outliving of the many Proverbs. Now, if you study the book of Proverbs, you'll notice that it's just loaded with various topics. It talks about all kinds of wisdom and obedience. It talks about avoiding major sins, some of the major sins in our life, the cardinal sins, the sins of lust and the sins of greed and, and things are, are all dealt with in the book 
of Proverbs, and examples are given, and countless phrases are given. One more little hint on the book of Proverbs, and that is this. The book of Proverbs was the courtly wisdom. It wasn't just the folk wisdom. It wasn't just what was believed out there amongst the people. Instead, it was the the choice and the best and the heaven-inspired thinking of God's people that had been collected and copied out and brought together in the king's court. And it was Solomon who was the koheleth or the preacher or the convener of a convention. And the convention that he convened was a convention of wisdom. He brought in the wise men. He collected the wise sayings. He copied them out. In other words, it's a royal wisdom, a divine wisdom. It's not just folk wisdom and common sense wisdom. It's beyond that. It's that much, I'm sure, and more. But it is the royal wisdom. You know, James has already spoken of the royal law, that is, the commandments of the Old Testament, and now he speaks of royal wisdom, the true wisdom that comes from the Lord. There's wisdom that if we're lacking, he said in the very first chapter, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives all freely and does not withhold. God is not stingy. He will bestow this wisdom upon you. And so let's look quickly at the, the contrast between these two forms of wisdom. Wisdom that is not from above and wisdom that is from above. Wisdom is the, the way you live life. It is not, the Greeks loved wisdom. Paul tells us that in Corinthians. But what they liked was a kind of intellectual, philosophical, speculative wisdom. Um, Speculating upon the great subjects of ontology and epistemology and all of these things that philosophers love to speak of. Hebrew wisdom was practical wisdom. It was the wisdom that was skillful living. And that's really where our religion plays itself out. We can hold all sorts of ideas and theologies in our mind, but if we don't live it out with our whole being, no one ever knows. And that's what James is driving at. James is driving at not just doctrinal integrity, doctrinal orthodoxy, but he is interested in practical orthoproxy. That is, right living. And uh, John Bunyan, the great writer of Pilgrim's Progress and also Grace Abounding, said the soul of religion is the practical part. The soul of religion is the practical part. The part of practice. Do you believe like a Christian? Good. You should. But do you behave as a Christian. And that's the hard part. That's the tough part. And so very vivid contrast is spelled out here. And let me just kind of hit the high places for us. The wisdom that is not from above is described as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Did you catch those things? It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The word that is here earthly means it is earthbound. It is to do what the Apostle Paul says is called the mind, the things of this world. It is to be concerned with 
only the here and now and only that which is around you. It's to be concerned only with things that are mundane. And it is to be obsessed with them, caught up with it, having only that perspective. It is a low perspective and it is a horizontal perspective. In other words, you barely see six feet above the ground. Everything has to do with that which is here, now, before you, on this plane, no thought of heavenly, it is earthbound. But it's worse than that. It is unspiritual. Literally the word is sukekos. We know the word suke, which means soul. And what it's talking about here, it's the soul as distinguished from the spirit. It's the soulishness. It is nothing more than human nature. It's the appetites and the desires of the flesh. In other words, you're controlled by and your perspective is only those things that are not just earthly, but have to do with the satisfaction and the meeting of the needs of the flesh and the appetites of the flesh. And it, it, it's a contrast word. It's contrasted to that which is spiritual, that which is above, that which is sublime and, and divine. So it's to be bound into this earth. It's to be enslaved to our own passions. But it's worse than that. <laughs> it's demonic. Oh, that's quite serious. Because what it's saying here is this kind of lifestyle has come under the thraldom of the prince of this world. And that is Satan himself. His demons are the one that go forth to incite and to motivate and to push us into this kind of activity. But then there is the wisdom that is from above. Let me contrast these by just referring to good old Apostle Peter. Apostle Peter was afflicted with both of these. Remember on one occasion, Peter, when Jesus was talking about going to the cross in Jerusalem and the course of, that his life would take and that his his course would take him eventually to Jerusalem and there he would be crucified and, and so forth. You remember Jesus teaching the disciples that? And Peter stood up and said, no, no, Lord, that will never be. That can't happen. We won't let that happen to you. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. That was a earthly, fleshly, demonic motivation on the part of Peter. He was saying, let's take care of what we've got. Let's protect ourselves. Let's do that which is immediately needed. Let's think in terms of our own selves and our own survival and our own uh, success. And Jesus rebuked him saying to him that that thought was out of the pit of hell. But remember another occasion Peter, Jesus, the disciples were together. And after that, what Jesus had said and what had happened on that occasion, Peter looked at Jesus and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And do you remember what Jesus said to him then? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. This thought comes from my Father in heaven. So Peter, like us, is susceptible to the influences of that which is from the pit, 
That is, we can hear the voice of the demonic whispering in our ears saying, no, don't go to the cross. We can also hear from heaven and have the Father tell us the right perspective and see through that which is merely earthly, that which is only apparent, that which is temporal and passing away. The demonic, the unspiritual, the earthly. If we want to summarize it there, we have it. The earthly, the unspiritual, the demonic. It's the world, it's the flesh, and it's the devil. The three classic enemies of the soul of the believer. And it says in the text here that these things lead us to some very horrible and awful ways of behaving. It puts us in a jealousy mode. Literally the word is zeal. And there's nothing wrong with zeal itself, but it's what are you zealous for? And if you're zealous for the wrong thing, if your enthusiasm and your activity and your energies are devoted to the wrong thing, if you pursue that which is not of God and that which is not eternal, then it leads to some very bad things. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. What other kind of ambitions do we have other than selfish ambitions? Maybe we need to think about our ambitions, where we want to be and what we want to do and what we want to accomplish how we want our lives, the days and the matter and the meat of our lives to be invested. Disorder, literally chaos, and every vile practice. It's interesting that when the Bible sort of lists things for us quite often, sin lists, and it says, and such other things that are like it. And that's kind of what we have here. We have some horrible things that we are directed to by wisdom that is not from above, but instead create jealousy, wrong zeal and ambition, disorder. There's a, uh, a good case to be made that James is speaking here primarily to the teachers and the preachers and the elders and the leaders of the congregation. You know, at the very beginning of this passage, he says, not many of you ought to be teachers. And then he spells it out. And there's a sense in which that elders need to take this more to heart maybe than any of other ones of us. Because it is the elders of the church that have this potential to have this leadership and this influence. And one of the worst things that's ever happened to the church is the, the spirit of factions, the spirit of parties. It's the party spirit. Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians in the early chapters where he talks about some say, I am of Paul. Some say, I am of Apollos. And some say, no, we're of Peter. And then there's some very pious say, no, we're of Christ. You see, there's this, this division. And often it comes. And you study the, study the history of the church. And it's men that have ambitions, jealousies, divisions, rivalries, factions that have often led the church astray and caused the disorder and the confusion in the church and disrupt the spirit and the harmony of the church. As much as we believe in truth, and our pulpit here has championed the truth since the first day, we believe in understanding that there is such a thing as truth, God's truth, true, tr true truth, 
And there is an importance of orthodoxy. But quite often in the church, even that's been used as a wedge to drive between people. The premier virtue in the church has always been love. Love. And when love is lacking, it's easy to take truth as a banner and charge forth on a selfishly ambitious path that leads to disorder. There's a lot here for admonishing a flock and the leaders and the elders of that flock. It's interesting that James, when he was the, served as the president of the council in Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter 15, that, that his role was that of bringing factions together. It was a peacemaking role. And sowing in peace, they reaped a harvest of righteousness. Even later on, when Paul comes back in Acts 21, when Paul comes back from his missionary journeys and comes back to Jerusalem, there's this, this huge aura that follows Paul of how he's been really, really, really getting off the reservation with respect to Christian liberties. And that he's been out there preaching all through the Mediterranean world certain things. And when he comes back home to the home base of Jerusalem, it is James that meets him there and hears his story and affirms what Paul's been preaching. And then reconciles it with some of the, the more uh, strict Judaizing types with Paul then moving forth with performing vows and going to have rituals in the temple to show that he is not here to disgrace and defile the temple or to preach against Moses, but instead it all comes together in matters of fulfillment. In other words, James does this peacemaking function. Well, let me summarize the wisdom that is from above. It is pure. That is, it is without guile. That is without guile in motive and without guile in method. It is wisdom that is peaceable. And the word literally means to yield. It's one of the hardest things in the world for men and women to do. To give a little. To be flexible. To lay your own ambition and your own agenda aside in order to hear the other party out. And that's what the next word means. Open to reason. That is to be persuadable. To have an open mind. And not only are there's this mental aspect to it, to open your mind and hear other points of view and to hear about other viewpoints and, and uh, uh, ideas, but also to do so in a spirit of mercy. That'll never work. It may not ever work, but can we hear about it? Can we look at it carefully? Can we pray about it? Can we think about it? That doesn't belong here. It may not belong here. But can we reasonably and mercifully and kindly assess amongst ourselves why it doesn't belong here? And it is not with, it is without uncertainty. <laughs> double negative there, which means it, it's the same term that he's used earlier where he talks about double-mindedness. Mean, meaning inconsistency. 
and inconsistency differentiated from the next one, which is without insincerity, means hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Saying one thing, doing another. And this reaps for us, when it's done right, when we receive this wisdom from above, a harvest of righteousness. Sown in peace, sown in peacemaking. It's interesting, these words, you start looking at them, they sound a whole lot like Paul when he gives us the list of the fruit, which I insist is a reference to a grain harvest, not an orchard harvest, but a grain harvest, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, meekness, gentleness, temperance, kindness, all of these things. This is what James is driving at. He's where he wants us to be. He's leading us into living out the Christian life. Righteousness, a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness is in the Bible very clearly a standing. We stand before God righteous, justified. We have been declared righteous by the virtues and the merits and the sacrifice of Christ. Righteousness is a standing, but it's also a walk. It's a walk characterized by staying in step with the Spirit. Righteousness, a standing before God that can never be changed. No matter how much you stumble and fall and halt in your walk, this standing can never be changed. Because it's not based on anything you've done or not done. It's based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. But there is this walk. There's this outliving, this this step-by-step, day-by-day, going from crisis to distress, going from highs to lows, going from great testing, from joys and triumphs to defeats and regrets. There's this walk. And that's what James wants us to do. He wants us to get that walk in step. He wants us to get that walk strong and, and, our, and our steps steady. A harvest of righteousness. 